I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 15. Mr. Collins was not a sensible man, and the deficiency of nature had been but little assisted by education or society, the greater part of his life having been spent under the guidance of an illiterate and miserly father. And though he belonged to one of the universities, he had merely kept the necessary terms without forming at it any useful acquaintance. The subjection in which his father had brought him up had given him originally great humility of manner, but it was now a good deal counteracted by the self-conceit of a weak head living in retirement and the consequential feelings of early and unexpected prosperity. A fortunate chance had recommended him to Lady Catherine de Bourgh when the living of Huntsford was vacant, and the respect which he felt for her high rank and his veneration for her as his patroness, mingling with a very good opinion of himself of his authority as a clergyman and his right as a rector, made him altogether a mixture of pride and obsequiousness, self-importance and humility. Having now a good house and a very sufficient income, he intended to marry, and in seeking a reconciliation with the Longbourn family, he had a wife in view, as he meant to choose one of the daughters, if he found them as handsome and amiable as they were represented by common report, this was his plan of amends, of atonement, for inheriting their father's estate, and he thought it an excellent one, full of eligibility and suitableness, and excessively generous and disinterested on his own part. His plan did not vary on seeing them. Miss Jane Bennet's lovely face confirmed his views, and established all his strictest notions of what was due to seniority, and for the first evening, she was his settled choice. The next morning, however made an alteration, for in a quarter of an hour's tete-a-tete with Mrs. Bennet before breakfast, a conversation beginning with his parsonage house, and leading naturally to the avowal of his hopes that a mistress might be found for it at Longbourn, produced from her, amid very complacent smiles and general encouragement, a caution against the very Jane he had fixed on. Sir, as to my younger daughters... I could not take upon myself to say, I could not positively answer, but I do not know of any prepossession. My eldest daughter, I must just mention, I feel it incumbent on myself to say, Jane is likely to be very soon engaged. Indeed. I hope that when such news arrives that perhaps... You may have more of a reason to rejoice than to commiserate, as what can but follow one blessing such as this when you have been blessed with many daughters, hmm? Of course. Forgive my sombre receival of this counsel, Mrs. Bennet. My dispirited reply is a sign of acknowledgement of an unrealised purpose. 
I will readily afford you and all your daughters such happy congratulations in turn. But you see, Mr. Collins, it does not follow that those congratulations would not be offered to you as well. I'm afraid I do not follow. <laughs> Mr. Collins, you may follow. If the congratulations of my eldest were followed by another congratulations of one of her sisters, in which you were also one of the party being congratulated. Oh, indeed. Indeed. I believe I do follow. Credit to you, madam. Your next eldest? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. <laughs> Elizabeth. Of her predispositions, may I inquire? Mr Collins had only to change from Jane to Elizabeth, and it was soon done, done while Mrs Bennet was stirring the fire. Elizabeth, equally next to Jane in birth and beauty, succeeded her, of course. Mrs Bennet treasured up the hint and trusted that she might soon have two daughters married and the man whom she could not bear to speak of the day before was now high in her good graces. Lydia's intention of walking to Meryton was not forgotten. Every sister except Mary agreed to go with her, and Mr Collins was to attend them at the request of Mr Bennet, who was most anxious to get rid of him and have his library to himself, for thither Mr Collins had followed him after breakfast, and there he would continue nominally engaged in one of the largest folios of the collection, but really talking to Mr. Bennet, with little cessation, of his house and garden in Huntsford. Such doings discomposed Mr. Bennet exceedingly. In his library, he had always been sure of leisure and tranquillity, and though prepared, as he told Elizabeth, to meet with folly and conceit in every other room of the house, he was used to be free from them there. His civility, therefore, was most prompt in inviting Mr. Collins to join his daughters in their walk, and Mr. Collins, being in fact much better fitted for a walker than a reader, was extremely pleased to close his large book and go. In pompous nothings on his side, and civil assents on that of his cousins, their time passed till they entered Meryton. The attention of the younger ones was then no longer to be gained by him. Their eyes were immediately wandering up in the street in quest of the officers, and nothing less than a very smart bonnet indeed, or a really new muslin in a shop window, could recall them. But the attention of every lady was soon caught by a young man, whom they had never seen before, of most gentlemanlike appearance, walking with another officer on the other side of the way. Ah, the lovely Miss Bennets. As the party approached, a gentleman smiled, and Lydia and Catherine giggled in response. The officer was the very Mr. Denny, concerning whose return from London Lydia came to inquire, and he bowed as they passed. All were struck by the stranger's air. All wondered, who could he be? And Kitty and Lydia, determined, if possible, to find out, led the way across the street, under the pretense of wanting something in an opposite shop, and fortunately had just gained the pavement when the two gentlemen, turning back, had reached the same spot. Mr. Denny addressed them directly. Would you give me the pleasure of allowing me to introduce my friend, Mr. Wickham? The gentleman again bowed with a smile. 
May I present to you Miss Jane Bennett, Miss Eliza Bennett, Miss Catherine Bennett, and Miss Lydia Bennett. And this is our cousin, Mr. Collins. And Mr. Collins inclined his head. So, what has brought Mr. Wickham to Meryton? He returned with me yesterday from town. Now I'm glad to say he has accepted a commission in the militia. So he shall be dressed in regimentals. And lend them no small measure of distinction, I should say. I fear he shall outshine us all. Denny, I have no wish for you to misrepresent me to these young ladies. Wickham modestly returned. This was exactly as it should be, for the young man wanted only regimentals to make him completely charming. His appearance was greatly in his favour, as Kitty and Lydia would later recall. He has all the best parts of beauty. A fine countenance. A good figure. And very pleasing address. They tittered before lapsing into giggles. The introduction was followed up on his side by a happy readiness of conversation, a readiness at the same time perfectly correct and unassuming, and the whole party was still standing and talking together very agreeably when the sound of horses drew their notice, and Darcy and Bingley were seen riding down the street. On distinguishing the ladies of the group, the two gentlemen came directly towards them and began the usual civilities. Bingley was the principal spokesman and Miss Jane Bennet the principal object. I was just now on my way to Longbourn on purpose to inquire after your health, Miss Bennet. I am overcome with your kindness, sir. I am much recovered. I am much delighted to hear such news. Mr Darcy corroborated it with a bow and was beginning to determine not to fix his eyes on Elizabeth when they were suddenly arrested by the sight of the stranger. And Elizabeth, happening to see the countenance of both as they looked at each other, was all astonishment at the effect of the meeting. Both changed colour, one looked white, the other red. Mr Wickham, after a few moments, touched his hat, a salutation which Mr Darcy just deigned to return. In another minute, Mr Bingley but without seeming to notice what passed, took leave and rode on with his friend. What could be the meaning of it? I have no idea. Did you see it? A small but distinct absence of gesture. It was impossible to imagine. It was impossible not to long to know. Mr Denny and Mr Wickham walked with the young ladies to the door of Mr Phillips' house and then made their bows, in spite of Miss Lydia's pressing entreaties that they should come in and even in spite of Mrs Phillips throwing up the parlour window and loudly seconding the invitation. Oh, but Mr Denny, no one cares of that sort of thing. My Aunt Phillips should be delighted to see you. You are too kind, Miss Lydia, but we must return to the regiment. Mr Denny apologised. Mrs Phillips was always glad to see her nieces, and the two eldest from their recent absence, were particularly welcome, and she was eagerly expressing her surprise at their sudden return home, which, as their own carriage had not fetched them, she should have known nothing about, if she had not happened to see Mr Jones's shop-boy in the street, who had told her that they were not to send any more drafts to Netherfield, because the Miss Bennets were come away, when her civility was claimed towards Mr Collins by Jane's introduction of him. She received him with her very best politeness, which he returned with as much more, apologising for his intrusion without any previous acquaintance with her, which he could not help flattering himself, however, might be justified by his relationship to the young ladies who introduced him to her notice. 
Mrs. Phillips was quite awed by such an excess of good breeding, but her contemplation of one stranger was soon put to end by exclamations and inquiries about the other, of whom, however, she could only tell her nieces what they knew already, that Mr. Denny had bought him from London and that he was to have a lieutenant's commission in the shire. She had been watching him for the last hour, she said, as he walked up and down the street, and had Mr. Wickham appeared, Kitty and Lydia would certainly have continued the occupation, but unluckily, no one passed the windows now, except a few of the officers, who, in comparison with the stranger, were become as Lydia claimed it. Stupid, disagreeable fellows. I wish someone would walk by who isn't so boring and plain. Some of them were to dine at the Phillipses the next day, and their aunt promised to make her husband call on Mr Wickham and give him an invitation also, if the family from Longbourn would come in the evening. This was agreed to, and Mrs Phillips protested that they would have a nice, comfortable, noisy game of lottery tickets and a little bit of hot supper afterwards. The prospect of such delights was very cheering, and they parted in mutual good spirits. Mr Collins repeated his apologies in quitting the room, and was assured with unwearying civility that they were perfectly needless. As they walked home, Elizabeth related to Jane what she had seen pass between the two gentlemen. But, though Jane could have defended either or both, had they appeared to be in the wrong, she could no more explain such behaviour than her sister. Mr Collins, on his return, highly gratified Mrs Bennet, by admiring Mrs Phillips' manners and politeness. He protested that, except Lady Catherine and her daughter, he had never seen a more elegant woman, for she had not only received him with the utmost civility, but even pointedly included him in her invitation for the following evening, although utterly unknown to her before. Something, he supposed, might be attributed to his connection with them, but yet he had never met with so much attention in the whole course of his life. Chapter 16 as no objection was made to the young people's engagement with their aunt and all Mr. Collins' scruples of leaving Mr. and Mrs. Bennet for a single evening during his visit were most steadily resisted, the coach conveyed him and his five cousins at a suitable hour to Meryton, and the girls had the pleasure of hearing, as they entered the drawing-room, that Mr. Wickham had accepted their uncle's invitation and was then in the house. When this information was given and they had all taken their seats, Mr. Collins was at leisure to look around him and admire his surroundings. I find myself struck by the size and fine furnishings of your apartment, Mrs. Phillips. Indeed, I might almost have supposed myself to be in the small summer breakfast parlour at Rosings. This comparison did not, at first, convey much gratification, but when Mrs. Phillips understood from him what Rosings was and who was its proprietor, when she had listened to the description of only one of Lady Catherine's drawing rooms and found that the chimney piece alone had cost £800, she felt the full force of the compliment and would hardly have resented a comparison with the housekeeper's room. In describing to her all the grandeur of Lady Catherine and her mansion, with occasional digressions in praise of his own humble abode and the improvements it was receiving, he was happily employed until the gentleman joined them, and he found Mrs Phillips a very attentive listener, whose opinion of his consequence increased with what she heard, and who was resolving to retail it all among her neighbours as soon as she could, to the girls who could not listen to their cousin, and who had nothing to do but to wish for an instrument and examine their own indifferent imitations of china on the mantelpiece. The interval of waiting appeared very long. 
It was over at last, however, when the gentleman did approach, and as Mr. Wickham walked into the room, Elizabeth felt she had neither been seeing him before nor thinking of him since with the smallest degree of unreasonable admiration. The officers of the shire were in general a very creditable, gentlemanlike set, and the best of them were of the present party. But Mr. Wickham was as far beyond them all in person, countenance, air and walk as they were superior to the broad-faced, stuffy Uncle Phillips, breathing port wine, who followed them into the room. Mr. Wickham was the happy man towards whom almost every female eye was turned, and Elizabeth was the happy woman by whom he finally seated himself, and the agreeable manner in which he immediately fell into conversation, though it was only on its being a wet night, made her feel the commonest, dullest, most threadbare topic might be rendered interesting by the skill of the speaker. With such rivals for notice of the fair as Mr. Wickham and the officers, Mr. Collins seemed to sink into insignificance. To the young ladies, he certainly was nothing, but he still had, at intervals, a kind listener in Mrs. Phillips, and was, by her watchfulness, most abundantly supplied with coffee and muffin. When the card tables were placed, he had the opportunity of obliging her in turn by sitting down to whist. Yeah, I know little of the game at present, but I shall be glad to improve myself, for in my situation in life... Mrs. Phillips was very glad for his compliance, but could not wait for his reason. Mr. Wickham did not play at whist, and with ready delight was received at the other table between Elizabeth and Lydia. At first, there seemed danger of Lydia's engrossing him entirely, for she was a most determined talker. But being likewise extremely fond of lottery tickets, she soon grew too much interested in the game, too eager in making bets and exclaiming after prizes to have the attention for anyone in particular. <laughs> La, but am I not very wonderful at this game, Mr Denny? Indeed, Miss Lydia, your skill at whist is only exceeded by your skill at dancing, which I can personally attest to. <laughs> Allowing for the common demands of the game, Mr. Wickham was therefore at leisure to talk to Elizabeth, and she was very willing to hear him. Though, what she chiefly wished to hear, she could not hope to be told, the history of his acquaintance with Mr. Darcy. She dared not even mention that gentleman. Her curiosity, however, was unexpectedly relieved. Mr. Wickham began the subject himself. Miss Bennet, how far is Netherfield from Meryton? Not far. Perhaps four miles. I see. And how long has Mr Darcy been staying there? About a month. He is a man of very large property in Derbyshire, I understand. Yes, his estate there is a noble one. A clear 10,000 per annum. You could not have met with a person more capable of giving you certain information on that head than myself. For I have been connected with his family in a particular manner from my infancy. Elizabeth could not but look surprised. You may well be surprised, Miss Bennet, at such an assertion, after seeing, as you probably might, the very cold manner of our meeting yesterday. Are you much acquainted with Mr Darcy? As much as I ever wish to be. I have spent four days in the same house with him. I think him very disagreeable. I have no right to give my opinion as to his being agreeable or otherwise. 
I am not qualified to form one. I have known him too long and too well to be a fair judge. It is impossible for me to be impartial, but I believe your opinion of him would in general astonish, and perhaps you would not express it quite so strongly anywhere else. Here, you are in your own family. Upon my word, I say no more here than I might say in any house in the neighbourhood except Netherfield. He is not at all liked in Hertfordshire. Everybody is disgusted with his pride. You will not find him more favourably spoken of by anyone. I cannot pretend to be sorry that he or that any man should not be estimated beyond their deserts. But with him, I believe, it does not often happen. The world is blinded by his fortune and consequence, or frightened by his high and imposing manners, and sees him only as he chooses to be seen. I should take him, even on my very slight acquaintance, to be an ill-tempered man. Mr. Wickham only shook his head. I wonder if he is likely to be in this country much longer. I did not know at all, but I heard nothing of his going away when I was at Netherfield. I hope your plans, in favour of the Shire, will not be affected by his being in the neighbourhood. Oh! <laughs> no, I, it, is, it is not for me to be driven away by Mr. Darcy. If he wishes to avoid seeing me, he must go. We are not on friendly terms, and it always gives me pain to meet him, but I have no reason for avoiding him. But what I might proclaim before all the world, a sense of very great ill-usage, and most painful regrets at his being what he is. His father, Miss Bennet, the late Mr. Darcy, was one of the best men that ever breathed, and the truest friend I ever had. And I can never be in company with this Mr. Darcy without being grieved to the soul by a thousand tender recollections. His behaviour to myself has been scandalous, but I verily believe I could forgive him anything and everything, rather than his disappointing the hopes and disgracing the memory of his father. Elizabeth found the interest of the subject increase and listened with all her heart, but the delicacy of it prevented further inquiry. Mr. Wickham began to speak on more general topics. Meryton, the neighbourhood, the society, appearing highly pleased with all that he had yet seen, and speaking of the latter with gentle but intelligible gallantry. It was the prospect of constant society and good society, which was my chief inducement to enter the Shire. I knew it to be a most respectable, agreeable corpse, and my friend Denny tempted me further by his account of their present quarters, and the very great attentions and excellent acquaintances Meryton has procured them. Society, I own, is necessary to me. I have been a disappointed man, and my spirits will not bear solitude. I must have employment and society. <laughs> a military life was not what I was intended for, but circumstances have now made it eligible. The church ought to have been my profession. I was brought up for the church, and I should, at this time, been in possession of a very valuable living. Had it pleased the gentleman we were speaking of just now. Indeed. Yes. The late Mr. Darcy bequeathed me the next presentation of the best living in his gift. 
He was my godfather and excessively attached to me. I cannot do justice to his kindness. He meant to provide for me amply and thought he had done it. But when the living fell, it was given elsewhere. Good heavens! But how could that be? How could his will be disregarded? Why did you not seek legal redress? There was just such an informality in the terms of the bequest as to give me no hope from the law. A man of honour could not have doubted the intention, but Mr. Darcy chose to doubt it, or to treat it as a merely conditional recommendation, and to assert that I had forfeited all claim to it by extravagance, imprudence, in short, anything or nothing. Certain it is that the living became vacant two years ago, exactly as I was of an age to hold it, and that it was given to another man. And no less certain is it that I cannot accuse myself of really having done anything to deserve to lose it. I have a warm, unguarded temper, and I may have spoken my opinion of him, and to him, too freely. I can recall nothing worse, but the fact is that we are very different sort of men, and that he hates me. This is quite shocking. He deserves to be publicly disgraced. Some time or other he will be, but it shall not be by me. Till I can forget his father, I can never defy or expose him. Elizabeth honoured him for such feelings, and thought him handsomer as ever as he expressed them. But what can have been his motive? What can have induced him to behave so cruelly to you, Mr. Wickham? A thorough, determined dislike of me. A dislike which I cannot but attribute, in some measure, to jealousy. Had the late Mr. Darcy liked me less, his son might have borne with me better. But his father's uncommon attachment to me irritated him, I believe, very early in life. He had not a temper to bear the sort of competition in which we stood, the sort of preference which was often given me. I had not thought Mr. Darcy so bad as this. Though I have never liked him, I had not thought so very ill of him. I had supposed him to be despising his fellow creatures in general. I did not suspect of him descending to such malicious revenge, such injustice, such inhumanity as this. After a few minutes' reflection, however, she continued, I do remember his boasting one day at Netherfield of the implacability of his resentments, of his having an unforgiving temper. His disposition must be dreadful. I will not trust myself on the subject. I can hardly be just to him. Elizabeth was again deep in thought, and after a time she exclaimed, To treat in such a manner the godson, the friend, the favourite of his father. She could have added, A young man too, like you, whose very countenance may vouch for your being amiable. But she contented herself with, And one too, who probably had been his companion, from childhood connected together, as I think you said, in the closest manner. We were born in the same parish, within the same park. The greatest part of our youth was passed together. Inmates of the same house, sharing the same amusements, objects 
of the same parental care. My father began life in the profession which your uncle, Mr. Phillips, appears to do so much credit to, but he gave up everything to be of use to the late Mr. Darcy and devoted all his time to the care of the Pemberley property. He was most highly esteemed by Mr. Darcy, a most intimate, confidential friend. Mr. Darcy often acknowledged himself to be under the greatest obligations to my father's active superintendence. And when, immediately before my father's death, Mr. Darcy gave him a voluntary promise of providing for me, I am convinced that he felt it to be as much a debt of gratitude to him as of his affection to myself. How strange! How abominable! I wonder that the very pride of this Mr. Darcy has not made him just to you, if from no better motive that he should not have been too proud to be dishonest. For dishonesty, I must call it. It is wonderful, for almost all his actions may be traced to pride, and pride has often been his best friend. It has connected him nearer with virtue than any other feeling. But we are none of us consistent, and his behaviour to me there were stronger impulses even than pride. Oh, but can such abominable pride as his have ever done him any good? Yes. It has often led him to be liberal and generous, to give his money freely, to display hospitality, to assist his tenants, to relieve the poor. Family pride and filial pride, for he is very proud of what his father was, have done this. Not to appear to disgrace his family, to degenerate from the popular qualities, or lose the influence of the Pemberley house, is a powerful motive. He also has brotherly pride, which, with some brotherly affection, makes him a very kind and careful guardian of his sister. And you will hear him generally cried up as the most attentive and best of brothers. What sort of girl is Miss Darcy? I wish I could call her amiable. It gives me pain to speak ill of a Darcy. <sighs> but she is too much like her brother. Very, very proud. As a child, she was affectionate and pleasing, and extremely fond of me, and I have devoted hours and hours to her amusement. But she is nothing to me now. She is a handsome girl, about fifteen or sixteen, and, I understand, highly accomplished. Since her father's death, her home has been London, where a lady lives with her and superintends her education. After many pauses and many trials of other subjects, Elizabeth could not help reverting once more to the first and saying, I am astonished at his intimacy with Mr Bingley. How can Mr Bingley, who seems good humour itself and is, I really believe, truly amiable, be in friendship with such a man? How can they suit each other? Do you know Mr Bingley? Not at all. He is a sweet, tempered, amiable, charming man. He cannot know what Mr Darcy is. Probably not. But Mr Darcy can please where he chooses. He does not want abilities. He can be a conversable companion, if he thinks it worth his while. Among those who are his equals in consequence, he is a very different man from what he is to the less prosperous. His pride never deserts him. But with his rich, liberal-minded, 
rational, honorable, and perhaps agreeable, allowing something for fortune and figure. The whist party soon afterwards breaking up, the players gathered round the other table, and Mr. Collins took his station between his cousin Elizabeth and Mrs. Phillips. The usual inquiries as to his success was made by the latter. It had not been very great. He had lost every point. But when Mrs. Phillips began to express her concern thereupon, he assured her with much earnest gravity that it was not of the least importance, that he considered the money as a mere trifle, and begged that she would not make herself uneasy. I know very well, madam, that when persons sit down to a card table, they must take their chances of these things. And, happily, I am not in such circumstances as to make five shillings any object. There are undoubtedly many who could not say the same, but, thanks to Lady Catherine de Berg, I am removed far beyond the necessity of regarding little matters. Mr. Wickham's attention was caught, and after observing Mr. Collins for a few moments, he asked Elizabeth in a low voice whether her relation was very intimately acquainted with the family of de Berg. Lady Catherine de Berg has very lately given him a living. I hardly know how Mr. Collins was first introduced to her notice, but he has certainly not known her long. You know that Lady Catherine de Berg and Lady Anne Darcy were sisters and that she is aunt to the present Mr. Darcy. No, indeed, I did not. I knew nothing at all of Lady Catherine's connections. I never heard of her existence till the day before yesterday. Her daughter, Mr. Berg, will have a very large fortune, and it is believed that she and her cousin will unite the two estates. This information made Elizabeth smile as she thought of poor Miss Bingley, vain indeed, must be all her attentions, vain and useless, her affection for his sister and her praise of himself, if he were already self-destined for another. Well, Mr. Collins speaks highly, both of Lady Catherine and her daughter, but from some particulars that he has related of her ladyship, I suspect his gratitude misleads him and that in spite of her being his patroness, she is an arrogant and conceited woman. I believe her to be both in a great degree. I have not seen her for many years, but I very well remember that I never liked her, and that her manners were dictatorial and insolent. She has the reputation of being remarkably sensible and clever, but I rather believe she derives part of her abilities from her rank and fortune part from her authoritative manner, and the rest from the pride of her nephew, who chooses that everyone connected with him should have an understanding of the first class. Elizabeth allowed that he had given a very rational account of it, and they continued talking together with mutual satisfaction till supper put an end to the cards, and gave the rest of the ladies their share of Mr Wickham's attentions. There could be no conversation in the noise of Mrs. Phillips' supper party, but his manners recommended him to everybody. Whatever he said was said well, and whatever he did, done gracefully. Elizabeth went away with her head full of him. She could think of nothing but of Mr. Wickham, of what he had told her, all the way home. But there was not time for her to even mention his name as they went, for neither Lydia nor Mr. Collins were once silent. Lydia talked incessantly of lottery tickets, 
of the fish she had lost and the fish she had won, and Mr. Collins, in describing the civility of Mr. and Mrs. Phillips, protesting that he did not in the least regard his losses at whist, enumerating all the dishes at supper, and repeatedly, fearing that he crowded his cousins, had more to say than he could well manage before the carriage stopped at Longbourn House. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I don't even know if anyone listens to these credits, but I put a lot of effort into them. So if you're listening to this, thank you for joining me and for not leaving me desperately, desperately alone. This episode was directed by me, Liana Skews, narrated by Olivia French and adapted for audio by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia French and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Liz Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Shannon Nichols as Mr. Collins, Daisy Kennington as Lydia Bennett, Amelia Pawsey as Kitty Bennett, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, and introducing James Waite as Mr. Denny and Elliot Gale as Mr. Wickham. This podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wathaurong people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wathaurong, Jarjarwarung, and Wurundjeri people. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to our traditional custodians and to their past, present, and emerging leaders. <laughs> <laughs>